church. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to John 1. That's where we're going to be. And if you are a student of student age, Tyre is going to take you out uh, for students this morning. You get to enjoy uh, looking at John together with her. We are beginning our study in the book of John this week. Uh, so, so excited to be able to be diving into this uh, amazing book and amazing gospel. But to get things going, uh, I want us to think a little bit about opening lines. You know, every classic novel, every great novel has a great opening line. You know, if, 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 if a book has a good first line, it can hook you from the beginning and you don't want to let go of it. You just keep reading. Um, so we're going to have a little a little game, if you will. I want to read a first line. And if you know it, please wait till I finish before you yell out. But then yell out what book you think it's from. Uh, and the crowd will decide if you're correct. Um, we'll start with a, a fan favorite. We'll see. Um, this is the first line of a book. Let me know if you know what this is from. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Drive are proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Anybody? Ha Not Star Wars. Harry Potter. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Um, we'll try another one. This one, a little more highbrow. Uh, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Anybody? Yes, Tale of Two Cities. Nice. Okay. Very educated bunch out here. Okay, I have one for the kids. Kids, if you're here and you can hear me and you know what book this is from, just yell it out. Are you ready? Okay. In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. Anybody? Good night, moon. That's right. Okay. Okay. If, if that's not you, let's try this one. Okay, kids, this is for you. Horn went beep, engine purred, friendliest sound you ever heard. Little blue truck. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Kids are listening. Um, let's try this one. Adults, this one's for you. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and Prejudice, yes. Then you can thank my wife for that one. Um, and then last one, let's see about this one. This, this is, I think, my favorite. Uh, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's right. Voyage of the Don Treader, C.S. Lewis. These are such great uh, opening lines. Well, this morning, uh, we, as I said, we're beginning our study in the book of John. And John begins with some just iconic opening lines as well. Uh, in community group this week, we were talking just about uh, how poetic and rhythmic the first lines of the book of John are, uh, as well as packed with important theology. Well, if you have your Bible open, just stick your finger in there. I, I want you to just hear it the first time, then we'll study it together. But let's hear John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 5. John opens his, his great work like this. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Wow. So begins John's gospel. Can we say amen? That's right. Well, if you were to go to the outlets this afternoon, uh, park your car, walk around, and just ask a random passerby, just to pull them aside, ground by the collar, who is Jesus? Besides frightening them and, and getting them to run away, um, they would undoubtedly get, you, you would get a lot of interesting answers. Okay? Some would take you seriously and try to have a philosophical conversation with you. Uh, others would make a joke out of it. Maybe they would quote lines from Will Ferrell in Talladega Nights when he prays to the baby Jesus because the baby version is his favorite. Uh, maybe you'd get someone with, with cultural awareness of Jesus, you know, what they've learned from, from the History Channel or, you know, Mel Gibson's The Passion or The Da Vinci Code or, or maybe even The Chosen if they're fans of that show. But living in a culture that was once predominantly Christian, but has seen the decreasing influence of, of Christianity as of late, it means that many people have at least heard the name Jesus. But there will be a varying degree of, of accuracy as to what they know, and a varying degree of honesty as to whether they care. Well, in, in the first century, just a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, the church recognized four accounts, four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus as authoritative. Okay, these were recognized because of their connections to eyewitnesses and their accepted truthfulness and reliability. And, and these four became passed around as the authoritative accounts of who Jesus was and what he did. Now, these four, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are what we have in our Bibles today. As a church, we will be digging in and studying the last of the four, John, for the next year, give or take, and we will see John over and over again answer that question, who is Jesus? Indeed, the gospel, according to John, kind of relentlessly bombards us uh, with the answer to that question throughout. But at the end of his gospel, in chapter 20, he actually tells us there is a purpose, a purpose to him writing, a purpose to answering this question. It's in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he writes this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's purpose. His purpose for writing this gospel. He wrote these things down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay, let me try to simplify that down even further. John was written that we may believe in Jesus and live. Let me say that again. John was written that we may believe in Jesus and live. I know this is awkward, but I'm going to ask you, can, can you say that with me? Can we say that together? We'll, we'll, we'll do it a couple times. Ready? John was written that we may believe in Jesus and live. Let's do it one more time. John was written that we may believe in Jesus and live. Now, we are going to see in the coming weeks what he means by believe, who this Jesus is, what kind of life that we can expect. But if we get that drilled into our heads, it will be such a helpful reminder throughout this book as we study it together. John was written that we may believe in Jesus and live. So I'm actually going to use that little phrase to outline our time this morning as we slowly dip our toes into the water uh, and just barely get our feet wet in this tremendous book. All right, 
John was written. We'll start there. Who was John, from which this gospel account gets its name? This is John, the disciple of Jesus, not to be confused with the baptizing wild man in the desert. Uh, This John was the brother of James. He was the son of Zebedee, a fisherman learning his father's trade when Jesus finds him. And in the gospel itself, he will refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You can take that either as a really prideful statement or uh, as a a statement of the impact that Christ's love had on his life. It just affected his identity. Uh, But when John is writing his gospel account, he's most likely writing from the town of Ephesus. Ephesus, which is up in modern-day Turkey today. And this is where Paul planted a church. And many important early church leaders and church fathers spent their time in Ephesus. Now, most scholars think he's writing between 70 A.D., which was the fall of Jerusalem, and 100 A.D. The ones that I like say around 80 A.D., so I'm going to go with that for another reason that I like them. Um, But John, if we take those dates, he was a young man when he traveled with Jesus. But as he's writing now, he's an older man, maybe 50 years later or so. Now, John was written. What? What was written? Well, what we're going to find in the coming weeks, 21 chapters, 878 verses. I've been told it takes about an hour and a half to read it in one sitting, if you were to try. Now, the book itself has has a pretty simple outline. It begins with a a, a prologue or an introduction, uh, which is chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, which we're looking at this week and next week. That's the the prologue. And it actually ends with with an epilogue or a conclusion in chapter 21. And then in between that, there's kind of two main sections. Some have called them the Book of Signs and the Book of Glory. But these two sections are roughly chapters 1 to 11. And it's the ministry of Jesus in Judea and Samaria and Galilee. And then book 2, you know, the Book of Glory, chapters 12 to 20, roughly. It's it's the last week of Jesus' life leading up to his death and then his resurrection. So there's the two main sections of the book, you know, three years almost in in the first 11 chapters and then one week or so in the last 10 chapters. Now, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospel accounts, you would realize just how different John is to the other three. It's, It's really different. I mean, if you read John, all of his greatest hits are missing. Okay? There's, there's no Christmas in John. No nativity scene with cute little animals and shepherds. It's not there. There's no childhood of Jesus. There's no temptation of Jesus in the desert. When he teaches, there's no parables in John, which is shocking. You know, he loves to use parables, not in John. There's no Lord's Prayer. There's no transfiguration. There's no places where he performs an exorcism in the book of John. Again, surprising. There's no Lord's Supper. No agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not in John. Even the miracles of Jesus, which are all over the place in the other Gospels, John limits himself to just seven. He just gives us seven miracles, and in John, he calls them signs. He says these are signs pointing to something. He's carefully crafting what it is that he's going to tell us about Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
Karis and I recently watched The Last Dance on Netflix. I don't know if you saw that documentary series. Very enjoyable. It's about Michael Jordan and his final season with the Chicago Bulls. Uh, 10-part sports documentary. If you're into sports documentaries, let me recommend it. It's awesome. You got the whole deal. You know, all the old classic footage of his classic shots and then the talking heads. So you've got Phil, you've got Dennis, you've got, you know, Scotty, and you've got Michael, and they're, they're talking about what happened. Now, the great thing about a sports documentary is, is you see what happened. You see it's there. There's the, the real story. But then you get to hear their take on it, their perspective of how it went down, and more importantly, their perspective of, of, of what it means with all the, the trash talk and, and the, the hype and whatnot. Now, that's a little bit like what we get with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different perspectives. There was a, a true thing that happened. Jesus walked, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again. But these four, they're giving us their take on how it went down. They're giving us their perspective on what it means. And, and so John writes with a particular purpose. Now, when the other three, some people call them the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they were written a decade or two before John was written, the burning issue of the church was to show that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Okay, he was the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. But John who's writing somewhat later when the church was confronting different challenges. So false teachers have arisen in the church, and they're, they're attacking the church from two different sides with their false teaching. There are those on one side who are challenging the deity of Christ, saying, no, 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 he's not God. And then there are also those on the other side who are challenging his true humanity. He says, no, he, he, doesn't, he, didn't, he wasn't really born. He didn't really come down. He wasn't really human. And as we'll see in this week and next, John confronts both of these challenges, and he confirms both the full deity and the true humanity of Jesus. But again, John's purpose is to get his readers to believe. He wants us to believe. Now, the Greek word for believe, uh, it's very important to John. It comes up in Matthew's gospel 11 times, that word. That word comes up in Mark's gospel 14 times. It comes up in Luke nine times, but in John, it comes up 98 times. It's really important to his gospel. But more than that, the word in its, in its form, it only shows up as a verb, okay, an action word, never as a noun. Okay? It's just fascinating. It's active. It's not static. At every moment, John tells his readers, it's a choice. He says, look at this Jesus I'm telling you about. Look at him. Will you believe? Will you believe? Now, we live in a day where our culture is becoming more secular day by day. So we're told there's the rise of the nuns and all of that. And yet, if you do a quick Google search, you can find multiple articles over the last several years that argue that, that a growing number of medical studies show that people with strong religious beliefs are likelier to be healthier and live longer than their less religious counterparts. They're less likely to die after open-heart surgery, more likely to recover from depression. They've got lower blood sugar and a stronger immune system. And so argue these medical journals, let's all have faith. You know, it doesn't matter what faith, we just need to have faith. Well, as we come to the Gospel of John, we need to know that's not what John hopes for his readers. He doesn't just want them to have faith generally. He's calling them to believe in Jesus. There's a content to the believing that he's trying to elicit. John was written that we may believe in Jesus and live. So let's turn to that next part, that we may believe in Jesus. And as we can turn to our passage, if you somehow lost it, uh, 
John wants us to believe in Jesus. So where does he begin his account? What does he want us to believe about Jesus? We're going to drill down into these five verses and see what we can mine from them. But look at verse 1. In the beginning. In the beginning. Now those words, I think, are incredibly familiar, uh, especially to his first listeners. At dinner this week, I asked my kids, I said, okay, guys, finish the sentence. In the beginning. And how did they respond? God created the heavens and the earth. That's right. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. That would have been on the minds of, of John's readers. It's the creation. God created. Now, again, this is interesting. Mark begins his gospel with a prophet in the wilderness, John the Baptist, preparing the way for the kingdom. Matthew begins with a genealogy going all the way back to Abraham, the father of, of the Jewish people. Luke gives us the longest birth narrative, but his genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, the first human. But John, John starts in eternity past. John says, he who was there in the beginning. John paints Jesus not just as the one born in a manger, but before that, as the one through whom the world was made. So verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now again, on the surface level, the reader is being prepared for what will follow. Because later on in, in the gospel, you know, Jesus performs one of his miracles, a sign. And you might ask, how? How can he do this? How can he perform these miraculous signs? Well, if he made the world, well, then water into wine, that ain't no thing, right? It's no big deal. He's the creator. Or you might ask, there's these long blocks of teaching. Why should people listen to his teaching? Well, if he made everything, well, who better knows the inner workings the intended purpose, and, and the goal of everything on earth. I mean, if it's true that he made it, well, then he's the greatest expert and authority on, well, on everything. He's the creator. Now, ponder that for just a moment. Many pundits today have decried fake news, alternative facts, other narratives, echo chambers of information that tell us only what we want to hear, deep fakes, you know, we don't listen to anyone else because we don't trust anyone else. And we've pulled down every authority and expert from their pedestal, and we've been set free to create our own truth. But John says, no, there was a beginning. There was a maker. He knows what is. And he knows what it is for. And he knows where it is headed. We should listen to him. Now, if we keep drilling, John takes us, there. So again, verse 1, he says specifically, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now maybe you've heard some smarty pants, uh, some pastor type like me say that word in Greek is the logos. Kids, kids, if you can hear me, can you repeat that after me? Can you say logos? Yes, good job, kids. One more time, logos. Okay, now turn to your parents and say, I speak Greek. Yep, you did. You just did. Okay, it's the Logos. Now, this word was loaded with significance uh, for both the Jewish and the Gentile audiences. Okay, the Greeks, they had talked about this idea of the Logos uh, for like 600 years before John. The Logos was this philosophical term which referred to, to, to reason, to rationality, and the laws of nature. It was often thought to be the, the unifying principle of the universe. So, the Stoic philosophers, they would look up at the skies and they would ponder just how is this universe so intricately and specifically, it just works. 
You know, how is it that the stars are so perfectly aligned and they don't move such that people can navigate? They can go on their boat and look at the stars and, and find their way just based on the stars. How is it that the, that the sun rises and, and sets every morning perfectly such that we can design a, a sundial that keeps track of time based on the sun? What controls, you know, summer and winter and springtime and harvest? Their answer was that all things are controlled by the logos, the reason of God. Now, on the other side, you had John's Jewish audience, okay, the non-Greeks, and they, they might have been aware of this Greek idea of the logos, but they also knew that the logos was the word in, in the Greek translation of their scripture for the word of the Lord. In fact, in, in Jewish understanding, God's word was so authoritative, it stood in for God himself, and it's often talked about almost as a person. And it, it would get talked about, you know, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and th such and such happened. Well, John comes along and says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And it's possible that both Jewish and Greek listeners are kind of nodding their heads. Yeah, okay, okay. Now, next week, Kevin will teach, and we'll see the verse that would have made both of their heads explode when John says that the Word became flesh, but that's for next week. But I want us to pause and just pause with this picture of the Christ as the Word for one minute. Because it's a huge part of John's gospel. Now, John won't use that word, that title again for Jesus, outside of chapter 1. It's the only real place that he calls Jesus this. But John will show us what it means for him to be the word. John presents a Jesus that speaks a lot of words. One commentator calculated that almost 80% of his gospel is made up of Jesus talking. So if you have one of those fancy red letter Bibles and you flip through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to see good chunks of red spattered throughout. Maybe in, in Matthew 5 to 7, there's a big chunk with the Sermon on the Mount, but it's kind of, kind of spread throughout. And then you get to John and you make a mental note of just how many pages in a row are red as you flip through. You'll see it right away. Jesus uses a lot of words. But it's not just quantity of words. John wants us to see the quality of his words. There's something about what Jesus is saying that well, it draws people to him and it repels people away. There's a, a power to his words. After one particular conflict, Jesus is teaching and, and a bunch of people are like, well, we like the miracles, but we're out of here. We can't handle what this guy is saying. And Jesus turns to his disciples and is like, hey, what about you? And like, are you kidding me? You have the words of eternal life. There's a quality to what this word speaks. And over and over again, when Jesus gets into arguments and verbal spats with his opponents, the sticking point time and again is that Jesus is claiming to speak the very words of God. In the beginning was the word, and in him was life. Now, this is a striking picture set against the sheer volume of words to us today in our culture. You know, supposedly in, in 2019, two years ago, in a single minute of 2019, the internet would see the transmission of 188 million emails and 18.1 million text messages. It's a lot of words. By 2020, there were 40 times more bytes of data on the internet than there are stars in the observable universe. It's a lot of words. And yet, we can all acknowledge that, yeah, there's so much talking, but there's so little listening. There's so much noise and information, but so little wisdom and understanding. You might think of T.S. Eliot writing almost 100 years ago, where's the life we've lost in living? 
Where's the wisdom we've lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? What about you? Do you hunger for words that mean something? Do you hunger for words that that have life? I think we do. We've had such a steady diet of blabber and bluster. But we long for a word, a word that can silence us because we just know it's the truth. You know, we have endless commentary, but we're craving the word who has the words of eternal life. Well, John doesn't just stop with the word in the beginning. He goes on. He continues to pull back the veil and let us into one of the most profound truths of the universe. He says the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, that may sound like a Susian tongue twister, but John is letting us into the very heart of the Trinity. If you're here this morning or you're watching the live stream and you're new to the Christian faith, the Trinity, it, it's a concept that is impossible to fully understand, even as we can describe what we can know about it. It's like the concept of infinity or eternity. We can know what it is, even if our minds can't fully grasp it all the way down. That's the Trinity. Okay? The Christian God is a triune God. We are monotheists. There's only one God, and yet we are Trinitarian. In that, there are three persons within that one God. It's a mystery, but it's beautiful, and it's such good news. Now, hang in there with me just for just a second. This isn't just theology nerd stuff for uptight seminarians, okay? For those who believe in God, if you're sitting here and you believe in God, let me ask you a question. What was God doing before the creation? What was he doing? I mean, if God is, is eternal... He always has been, but the universe has a beginning. What was God doing in eternity past before he made everything? I mean, this is an immensely important question because it shapes what we believe about who God is in his very essence. Because without the Trinity, God becomes kind of needy. Without the Trinity, God's primary characteristic, who he is, what makes him him. You know, maybe you think of God, okay, his, his, in his purest form, God is all-powerful or almighty. Or in his purest form, he's, he's creator or, or whatever else you might come up with to answer that question. Well, it's unfulfilled before creation. If God is a singular monad God and not a Trinity then God needed the world. He needed to create in order to show who he is and his very character and essence. If he's almighty, he needed a universe in which to show his power. If he's the creator, he needed to create to show who he is. And so for all of eternity, he just was waiting. But if God is a trinity, well, then his very essence is altogether different. His very essence is one of relationship and love. Father, loving Son, Son, loving Father, Spirit proceeding from both, loving and glorifying both in this vibrant, energetic life. So in our community group this week, Chelsea, she said, I love this. It's, it's the withness of God. He's always with. There's relationship there. And so Jesus says in John 17, 24, that the Father has loved the Son since before the foundation of the world. That means 
That means that the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been in loving relationship within the fellowship of the Trinity for all eternity. And if this is the God that created the world, and if this is the God that is speaking in Christ, we have a God who is inviting us to share in his very life with those he has made. He didn't create to show off his power. He didn't create purely to, to show off his, his creativity. He created because he is love, and he wanted to share that with his creation, with us. And what we'll see time and again throughout our studies of John is that Jesus, the Son, he's longing to show us the Father. Next week, we'll see it in verse 18 that Jesus is making him known. Now, some of us, unfortunately, we, we think of Jesus as this safe, good guy who kind of protects us. He shields us from this angry God who's kind of waiting behind the heavenly curtain. You know, it's kind of the opposite of Wizard of Oz. We have the big, you know, scary wizard and then the weak little man hiding behind the curtain. It's, it's opposite. Jesus is kind of the nice one and behind is this menacing God waiting behind his back. You know, have you ever heard someone ask that question, how do you reconcile the vengeful God of the Old Testament with the loving God of the New Testament? Okay, I don't know if you've ever heard that. Uh, I got that a lot in college. The person asking it hasn't read the Old or New Testament very carefully, but that's beside the point. John is telling us that there is no God behind the back of Jesus waiting to smite you. What you see in Jesus is the God of the universe. Are there any fans of Parks and Rec out here? Okay, I like that show. Uh, in season two, two very important characters show up, Chris Traeger and Ben Wyatt. And when they arrive, they're coming to fix the finances of the city, of Pawnee. Okay, and, and it's, it's a mess, and they got to really get a hold of this, the books and, and fix things. And Chris Traeger, he's this enthusiastic, energetic yes man. He's like, oh, you like that? I love that about you. Yes. He's like the most exciting guy ever. And then behind him is Ben Wyatt with his arms kind of folded like, mm, you know, grimacing because he has to deal with the books, uh, with the accounts. But, he, you know, he shows up to the Parks and Rec department. He's like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? What? Like, we want to do this. He's like, yes, Ben, can we do that? And Ben's like, no. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, what about you? What are you going to do? Yes, can we do that? No. And, you know, behind Chris Traeger's fun-loving, happy, you know, welcoming facade is the angry Ben Wyatt, you know, crashing the party, saying no to everything. Okay? Friends, that's not the God that we worship. It's not as if Jesus is there welcoming us with his outstretched arms, welcoming us with his warmth and his love, and then behind him is an angry God who's just waiting for his chance to put his thumb on you and smite you. That's not the God we worship. The Father is not sitting behind Jesus, you know, as Jesus welcomes you, ready to maybe cast some people out. No, that's not how it works. What you see in Jesus is what God is like. So Colossians 1 says he is the image of the invisible God. And in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1 says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. There's no angry God waiting behind the back of Jesus. No, the word was with God and the word was God. As we drill down into these first few verses through creation to the word behind creation to the word who was with God in the triune Godhead for all eternity, what we find is a completely different picture of the very nature of the universe than what so many of us are used to. You know, at the center of the universe is a God who has existed for all eternity in the happy and warm fellowship of the Trinity. 
And that God has not only made the world, but is redeeming the world in order to invite us into that warm fellowship. So many today kind of agree with Shakespeare's Macbeth. They think that life is a told, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. But John says, oh dear friends, no. There's so much more. John was written that we may believe in Jesus and live. John wants us to peer back into the eternity past because this word is also the light and life of men. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Maybe in your community groups, you compared these verses to Genesis 1, and you realized, wow, John is riffing on the creation theme because, you know, God, he speaks life into existence, and, and, and his first speech act of creation is to create light. This is great. But John is doing more than just saying the word was there for that. Because we know, as John's readers knew, that after Genesis 1, there has been a whole lot of darkness. The word who has life and is the light of men, he was coming into the world to shine and the darkness will not overcome. What is John saying? Well, the word is not just a creator, but also a redeemer. There is a new act of creation breaking out in this world. The God who made the world is the God who is remaking the world in Christ. The creation account in Genesis 1 ends with a man, Adam. The creation in John ends with verse 14, God becoming man in our second Adam. The one who breathed life has come to give life. John was written that we may believe in Jesus and live. And throughout this gospel, we are going to encounter this duality, this stark choice between light and darkness, life and death. And the center of the choice is believing in Jesus. Will we believe? Over and over again, John gets us to believe. He writes to get us to believe and live. Now again, maybe this morning you're sitting there, ah, yes, good. All these people need to ask themselves that question. You know, I accepted Jesus when I was seven, so I'm in. I don't need to worry about these questions anymore. Friend, if that's you, please know John is calling you to believe. It's a verb. It's an action word. It's not a one and done deal any more than breathing is. John says, by believing, you may have life in his name. Life is an active, ongoing thing, and so must be our believing. What we're going to see in our time in this gospel is that the call to believe is just as much for the Christian as the non-Christian. There is life in his name. There is life in Jesus, and believing in him can radically transform our life now and into eternity. Not as fire insurance, though there is fire from which to be saved, but as our very breath. In him is life. Are you truly living? The light shines in the darkness. Do you feel the warmth of his light? Or is the cold of the darkness getting to you? The choice is stark and sobering. John was written that we may believe in Jesus and live.